What's up, everyone? Ryan Ray here in the war room, hanging out with another podcast. True crime is the topic today, but first, let's take our sponsor, which is Bluehost. Are you looking for free advertisement? Well, Bluehost doesn't have that, but I do. If you use my link, ryanraysenior.com slash hosting, ryanraysenior.com slash hosting, send me an email. I'll give you free publicity on this podcast when you sign up to get your hosting through Bluehost. So be sure to check that out. Today's guest is Scott Ditchie, and I found him because I'm trying to do, this is not a true crime podcast, but I'm interested in the topic. And so his new book, Hitman, the Mafia, Drugs, and the East Harlem Purple Gang is what got me interested to have him on. I'm a link to his website. Uh, he is an author who specializes in organized crime. And so he's got all kinds of stuff about organized crime on Amazon, on his website. So be sure to check it out. The show notes are where? RyanRaySenior.com. Be sure to check that out as well. Without further ado, here's my interview with Scott. Scott, it is lovely to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Well, we were just talking uh, off air here, and it is brutally hot in the state of Texas. So it's it's always good to get get a little distraction from the heat. And this is a subject that I think most Americans are fascinated with hitman, mob, crime, true crime. You were obviously lucky enough to kind of write about this. Uh, what got you into this career? So um, my general stock answer to when anyone asks uh, how I got interested in the mafia is that I grew up in New Jersey. So it's kind of genetically ingrained. <laughs> um, really, I started reading mob book. My mom always liked the old mob movies. So, you know, watch them as a kid. And then um, after I saw Goodfellas in the movies, I started reading some of the true crime books that were at the time about the mob. And it just, it really just started kind of as a hobby, something I was interested in. And then um, sometime around in the mid nineties, um, I started getting more information off the web. And there were a couple of mafia websites. This is like early on, like 95. So these were like text <laughs> websites. Um, I became more and more interested. And I had moved to, um, the Tampa Bay area, St. Pete, Florida, and really got interested in the Tampa Mafia to start. So I started doing research and somewhere like in a late night, like 97, 98, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going to write a book, I think. So that's, uh, that's kind of how that started. And um, you know, I wrote my first book in the early 2000s, and it's kind of grown and uh, it continued from there. And I've expanded out of Tampa, Florida, and I've written about the New Jersey Mafia, a little bit about New York in my, in my latest book. So kind of, um, yeah, it's kind of uh, really expanded well past what I thought it was going to. And I have to ask the question, how often do you get reached out, uh, hit up by members of the mob saying, hey, you got this right, you got this wrong, here's some inside information, or don't you dare talk about me? No, it's it's more the former. I've not, never had an, a latter incident where they've like been like, don't yeah it's a lot of um, people be exactly what you said like oh that's that's not really what happened or the cops must have told you that's how it went down and, uh, <laughs> i always like getting i always like getting those anecdotal inf information because i think that helps with the book and um it, as you probably know or anyone that spends five minutes on youtube there's a ton of ex-mobsters now that are kind of out in the open and you know i've talked to some of them for research on my books and stuff so it's um you know it's become quite an interesting cottage industry certainly between true crime podcasts and these true crime and mob guys on YouTube, it's it's really kind of regenerated interest in the subject. 
One of the things that I've struggled with is um, how to talk about, um, we talk about true crime. You think of someone like, um, oh gosh, the, uh, the Iceman killer. I can't remember his name. Um, Kalinske. Kalinske. Yeah. You think of someone like him who's got, you know, homicides upon homicides, according to him, or you think about someone like Bundy um, and you think about these, these true crime narratives and, and you look at them and you go, wow, these, these are vicious killers. They're bad people. And that's all true. And the same ties into the mob. They're, they're, they can be very vicious. They can be very, they can kill, they can hurt. Um, but there's a sense in which, are they tough guys? Because because society put couches them as tough guys, but they seem to operate with a gang mentality or a two on one or a three on one or catchy kind of blindside mentality. Researching the mob and stuff and the mafia, do you think that we should categorize categorize these people as tough tough guys or some, some might say cowards? How should we look at people like this? Well, I, I certainly think there are some that are definitely tough guys, and they're. Guys that are probably, if you were to use, you know, you bring up Bundy, if you were to use the definition, are, were probably serial killers. You know, that they killed a lot of uh, people, even though they were in the underworld. And generally, they keep that kind of crime and the violence to other people involved in that. Um, yeah, there were some guys that were definitely tough guys. And there were guys that weren't. There were people that were the money guys, or there were bookmakers who didn't get involved in that. So it, it's really kind of a a, a mix of different kind of people and you know there's the guys you hear you know we're just big blowhards <laughs> kind of you know talk to talk kind of thing <laughs> so I, th I think yeah it's kind of a layer question because there, there's different types of wise guys and different types of personalities in organized crime the mafia is similar to anywhere but it definitely ran the gamut to guys that were serious okay so that brings us to east harlem in the 70s <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a rough place to grow up, a rough, a rough place to, to live. Uh, is Was that kind of what, what got you into this, this period? Obviously, like the mafia, I'm sure um, this period is, is kind of um, in New York at large is, is, you know, there's a lot of mob activity. But why East Harlem, the Purple Gang? So when I was researching my previous book, Garden State Gangland, about the mafia in New Jersey, I was researching a, a particular hit of a Genovese crime family member in New Jersey, John Lardier. And I came across a cross-references article in New York Magazine from 1979 that talked about these group of 22 caliber killings that had happened in New York. And they referenced this group called the Purple Gang out of East Harlem. And I kind of heard that name before. Um, one of their uh, leaders or ex-Purple Gang guys, Michael Meldish, was killed in 2013. So, you know, I, it was kind of around that I'd heard it and it kind of got me interested. So I started doing some research. I'm like, oh, nobody's ever really written about this group. And this was a group that was active for about 10 years. But out of this gang came some heads of the families. In fact, uh, one of the current heads of the f uh, five families in New York started as a Purple Gang member. So it was kind of like uh, this farm league for, for the mafia in New York in the seventies. You mentioned that there's a story that's been written about that kind of got overlooked. That That's fascinating because it feels like there is a plethora, as you alluded to, there's people on YouTube, there's true crime, po true crime podcasts, there's books. Is there a lot of mob stories that are yet to be uncovered? Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. It's, um, especially when you get outside um, into some of the smaller cities or cities that have never really been written about. But even in New York, New Jersey, there, there are a lot, of, a lot of things that haven't been uncovered or really written about at length. 
um, you know, Gotti's been done, Al Capone's been done, but there's there's probably dozens of more more influential and more powerful mob guys that have never really been uh, you know, given the, the, the treatment uh, in a book form. So yeah, there, there's definitely still a lot of stories out there. So I, I could probably keep this going for, for a while. <laughs> I'm about to say you give, you give hope to aspiring true crime uh, authors and it's good for you to have more, more, more stories to write about. Okay. So you mentioned the purple gang is kind of, um, you know, it, it was a, um, almost like a, a feeder to some of these larger things. Maybe break that down because you mentioned the five families. There's a lot to unpack there. We kind of think, you know, for, as someone who's not an officiato, but kind of is familiar with those terms, it kind of means something to me. But people who don't know, when you say this, like, like how how did it work then, and how does it work now? So, uh, you know, the, the mafia as a core group uh, is made up of crime families, and uh, at its height, there was anywhere from twenty six to twenty eight, maybe a couple more, in the United States, and in the New York area, in New York City, there were five families, and they were the five largest and probably the most powerful families in the United States for, for most of their existence. Chicago might have been up there at one time. And you know, these five families are made of made up of made guys. That means they're formally inducted into the mafia. So a group like the Purple Gang starts off, these are young kids in their early 20s. Some of them are related to, to guys in the mafia, but they're considered associates because they're not formally made into the mafia. So they're dealing drugs, they're committing violent crimes, they're trafficking guns, um, really kind of get a reputation as hotheads. But as they age and as the 70s progress, some of the guys, you know, kind of break away and are seen as potential members for some of the New York crime families. Um, and then they become made guys or they're formally inducted. Someone like, uh, like Angelo Prisco, who starts off as a street gang member, you know, member of the Purple Gang growing up on, in East Harlem. Uh, and eventually he becomes made or formally inducted into the Genovese crime family and, and rises up in, in the ranks on that. So it was kind of, um, you know, a promotion into the mafia. And once you're in, once you're a made guy, you're considered a, a, you know, a member of the mafia. Yeah, and it's like a gang like this, the Purple Gang, um, is it all of, of these other, the, you know, same Italian descent? Are they able to get made? Is there kind of a mix? Because it, it, it being a not one of the five, how are they trying to, how are they getting a genesis and trying to uh, latch onto these groups? So the, the Purple Gang is kind of a loosely affiliated group of, of guys. Some are Italian, some are not. Um, uh, there's a few Puerto Rican guys in there as well. And they basically grow up in the same neighborhood. They're the same age cohort. And, and I actually have a chapter where I take a look at something I want a little more scientific called network analysis. And there, there's a study showing how some of these guys are related to each other, how deep their connections are. But really, there's the same guys that kind of grew up in the same neighborhood. They kind of see these drug dealers on the corner. The East Harlem was a huge um, epicenter of heroin trafficking in the early, late 60s and early 70s. And then they kind of move in to fill in some of these roles and some of the um, other guys get arrested. So they kind of move up into this power vacuum and they're all kind of connected through, you know, growing up near each other. And then as they mature, as some of them uh, go off and become members of the mafia, they, they kind of grow up and move out of East Harlem and then kind of spread out. And then you see by the late 70s, the gang itself kind of starts to dissipate 
but individual members continue on with careers in organized crime. Okay, you touched on this a minute ago, the 22 pistol, um, why the 22? So the 22 was definitely a weapon that was used a lot, um, small, you know, easy to carry around. Um, there was a big shipment of them, or not really shipment, I should say. There was a big purchase of, of guns that were made in Florida in the, in the mid-1970s by members of the Purple Gang. And there were a lot of 22s, and they brought them back up to New York um, and sold them primarily to members of the Genovese family. And they also kept some for themselves. And out of this one batch of guns that the Purple Gang brought up, which were predominantly 22s, uh, the FBI were able to link a dozen, over a dozen gangland killings uh, to this one batch of guns at the Purple Gang. So you kind of extrapolate that. They were really just kind of providing guns and, and pouring guns onto the streets of New York. And, uh, you know, the 70, when people think of like gangster killings, you know, a lot of people think like the Prohibition era, the 20s. But the 1970s were a pretty violent time, uh, especially in New York City in regards to the underworld. So uh, the fact that most of the killings that were happening are traced to guns that were trafficked by this, by the Purple Gang, you know, uh, it's pretty interesting. It, it is. And the, the thing that, that I wonder about when you kind of go back and let's just be honest here, the 60s to kind of late 80s in American history is it's just fascinating for a lot of a lot of uh, interesting uh connections between you know the CIA, the FBI, the crime organizations and stuff like that. How, how far out do these groups get into what we call high society politicians, you know, are they influencing oh. judges and stuff like that? Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that is like playbook mafia 101 is, is the, the corruption. Uh, any major city where the mob were very active, there's absolutely levels of political corruption, you know, everywhere from the beat cop to, like you said, judges, politicians. You know, the early 1960s, you see kind of this weird cross, uh, cross pollination of uh, the CIA and the mafia. Um, I spoke at length before he passed to Robert Mayhew, and he was, um, he later went on to work for Howard Hughes, but he was a conduit uh, between the CIA and the mafia uh, regarding the anti-Castro plots, which for a long time, people weren't sure whether it was true, but actually, and for those of you, your people listening don't know, I mean, in a nutshell, the CIA paid the mafia to kill Fidel Castro. Um, they had meetings with Sam Giancana, who's the mob boss of Chicago, Santo Traficante, who's the mob boss of Tampa, but had a lot of interests in Havana before Castro came to power. Uh, and Johnny Roselli, another Chicago uh, maf mafioso who relocated out to the West Coast and was also active in anti-Castro operations. So yeah, right where you're talking about the early 60s is when you see that really kind of bleed into almost you know, Western hemisphere geopolitics. Yeah, we had... Um... Uh, the author of the Scorpions dance the other day, and he was talking about just the, the fact that on the day Kennedy's assassinated, you know, the CIA is meeting with someone to us to have us, uh, Castro assassinated. <laughs> so it's just, it's just there. But, but that leads me to a broader question. So when you're doing a book like this, how do you tell the history of this time period? Because obviously it's impossible to understand how far out the reach of the Purple Gang goes. Right. So there's there's going to be judges who were bribed that we'll never know about. But there's also judges who were probably just scared um, because they had heard the reputation. So how do you balance that when you're trying to get the ethos of a, of a period in history like this? 
Yeah. So, you know, what I tried to do with this book is um, really instead of kind of following just the gang as an entity. So rather than picking an individual person, something, how this kind of group, why it emerges in East Harlem, how it emerges, how it gets swallowed up in violence that kind of thins its ranks and how when it dissipates, it, it kind of becomes a springboard for these other uh, mafioso. And, and now I bring it right up to, to current, to, to gangsters that start as a purple gang that are still active today. Um, so, so I kind of looked at it as an overarching history of this concept of the purple gang as, as, as an entity of itself. Um, and that kind of helps me push it forward narratively because, um, you know, there's a lot of names in it. So, you know, I have a good index. So if you need to cross-reference a name, um, but because there's, you know, a lot of violence, there's a lot going on. I, I try to push the narrative that way chronologically. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of do, I kind of view two ways. I've done books that are focused on one person and kind of the broader context of that person's career. Um, and then ones that are just kind of general overall mob histories. And, uh, you know, the, uh, and sometimes like, for example, the, the Garden State Gangland, my, my previous book was an overall history of the mob in Jersey, which had never been done before. But I found a story in there that might be my next book. So, you know, I kind of, for myself too, it gives me an opportunity to say, oh, here's some potential stories, as I mentioned earlier, that, that haven't been written about. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. I, I think for the thing that I've pondered on, there was a there's a um, a uh, four part docu uh, series on Netflix, like the Mob in New York City or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was watching that, and, and I, I got to thinking, how do you write history books about how New York City was built? Because it, you have you can you have the things you can prove, then you have the speculation, but then you have the things that you you will never know into all the business dealings that you'll never know about. Um, but how it how it shaped and and and, and um, really determined how this city was built, which contractors were already wealthy, which ones were poor. And you start thinking about all the implications of that. And it, it, it's wide sweeping. You know, you have people who are murdered who are obviously impacted directly with their families, but then there's all kinds of stories that you can't tell. And so I, when I think about this period of history, especially in, in the, you know, New York, New Jersey, it feels like it would be on some level, you, you could be um, overly talk about what the mob, the impact of the mafia did. And then on the, on the flip side, you might diminish it because you haven't pushed it out far enough. I, I can see it being, being a tough way for, for an author to balance, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a really good question because I struggle with that sometimes is what, what's, the, what's the story I'm trying to tell or where, where do I end? And you know, I gotta be honest with you, one of my favorite parts of doing it is the research. And there's times I just have to tell myself, all right, stop, <laughs> stop. Yeah, Stop no further. here. You don't want to go <laughs> no further. Um, and, and yeah, there, there's there's stuff I find that that like I'll find really interesting, but I know it doesn't really do anything for the book. So I try to, mm -hmm. uh, I, yeah, I, I kind of try to keep my books a little tighter focused, um, but there's so much information out there. So sometimes I'll like throw it in the notes. If there's some like interesting little thing, you know, I'll put it in the end notes or, or something. Um but yeah, that, that's a really good question. And that, you know, there, there are more, I've read some books that are like organized crime for more of kind of a, um, kind of a broader sociological perspective that kind of try to look at it from that. But for me, I find the interest from the bottom up of, you know, the guys, what they were doing, how they fit into the, the organized crime hierarchy. So, um, but yeah.
Yeah, and I think that's the thing about history that, you know, as not an historian here, um, but as you start thinking through history and why you can have so many books on the same subject is because it's impossible to tell the story. <laughs> like it's, it really becomes impossible and you need a confluence of authors to kind of give their perspective and weigh the evidence uh, differently and focus on things. So um, yeah, I'm sure there's, I just, I don't envy that task is what I'm getting at. I guess it's, it's gotta be, it's gonna be tough. Okay. Now the other thing that I, that I thought about um, when you think about the, the mob is obviously the, the relationship with the police. And so you, you, you know, what is your read on uh, this era, the Purple Gang, the interaction with the police and uh, in, in the 1970s? So this, co coincidentally, this kind of comes on the heels of uh, the Knapp Commission in New York, which uh, probably the, the best way to describe it is go out there and stream the movie Serpico with Al Pacino. It'll give you a good uh, kind of a good overall view. Basically, the NAP Commission was set up to uncover, you know, this incredible depth of corruption in the NYPD. And a lot of it stemmed from, from drug cases and drug trafficking that were tied to organized crime. Uh, so you're in that era where you have the FBI finally starting to come on the scene a little bit. Um, the NYPD is finally starting to address the corruption in its ranks, but at the same time, beefing up um, their narcotics uh, task forces. So it's kind of in this weird midsection where it's like the calm before the storm because by the late seventies, the FBI are kind of jumping in with both feet. And, you know, you mentioned the documentary fear in the city, which shows, you know, by the early eighties, the FBI are really cracking down on the mafia. So this was like kind of the last time that a group like the purple gang could really kind of rise up. And some of them were arrested. Some of them were, you know, arrested on drug charges, but, you know, they, they kind of came up in this era where, you know, not everyone was paying close attention to them. So um, it, it kind of gave them a little bit more, more freedom, I guess, at that time. And the seventies were probably the last really big, powerful era of the mafia before the FBI uh, and really started to use the RICO act to, and start cracking down on it. Yeah. I was about to ask you about that because I've heard um, varying opinions of the RICO and, and how, how it's been used and, and, you know, the mob's awareness of it. And, um, you know, so someone like the Purple Gang, um, you know, how would they, when do they become aware of stuff like that? And then how do they try to, were they effective at all at trying to skirt it? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think the RICO Act implications really became known until the mid eighties by the mafia and really how the FBI were using it. Um, and then, you know, it just becomes kind of a cat and mouse game of how do you avoid eavesdropping? How do you avoid mm -hmm. someone ratting you out? You know, how do you avoid wires? Um, and look, I have my own thoughts on how Rico's used sometimes. I, I think there have been cases where people have been brought in that shouldn't have and really, but because it's such a broad statute, mm -hmm. it, it kind of gives, it weighs it very heavily in the government's favor um, when they're looking at that. Oh, um, but that being said, it you know was a very effective tool to to crack down on, especially the infiltration of legitimate uh, businesses by organized crime. Yeah, and so I think with Rico was passed in around what came out like the like seventy ish somewhere in that time period. Yeah, and it, but it took a while for them while. To, even the FBI to figure out, hey, what is this we have? How do we use this? So right, I think that's kind of the interesting story is that it, it was there. Um, and they didn't know how to use it. That's kind of my understanding as well. And so it, it is weird because you know, as someone who 
studies crime, um, you know, professionally, if you will, thinking about something like, like RICO, but also thinking about how, um, you know, how effective do you think the other side of the equation is? So you have these people, uh, these organized crimes who are out there, they're trying to do drugs, they're trying to, you know, come up in the streets, if you will. Uh, there's a determination that they, that they show. Um, how effective do you think law enforcement is, generally speaking, um, you know, once they get RICO, as you said, they, they kind of expand their horizons, or, uh, their ability to crack down on all these cases. But, but moving forward into a kind of modern day, is the mob kind of done for? Does it still have some teeth somewhere? Or because um, it, it's kind of hard to read down here in Texas what was going on. <laughs> yeah, so the mob is still active in New York um, to a lesser extent in Philadelphia, New England, Chicago, and um, Detroit. But a lot of the smaller cities where they're active, St. Louis, Denver, they're they're gone. Uh, talking about Texas, the Dallas crime family is you know long gone. Um, a lot of that had to do with law enforcement. A lot of that had to do with general assimilation and attrition. Um, like in Tampa, for instance, it just kind of faded away as you know the sons didn't go into the business. Mm -hmm. but, but law enforcement definitely was very successful um, in the 80s, 90s, and even through today, and really. Uh, dismantling the mafia. Uh, the flip side is that this is 2022 and we're still talking about the mafia, you know, mm -hmm. as an active entity in New York, which, you know, well over 100 years, 125, 130 years, it's been around, which, you know, that's, that's kind of, kind of interesting as well. Because it's funny, if you go back to like the 80s, and you'll see like these big busts and the prosecutor will come and say, you know, this is the end of the mafia. We've, we've killed it or we put a stake in its heart. And, yeah, it's almost 40 some years ago. Yeah, that, that is interesting. Okay. So let me ask you this. Give me your favorite story or thing that you found about this purple gang that you didn't include in the book. You said there's things that you just don't include. So what did you cut from the book that you'd like to share with the audience? Um, actually, I didn't cut a lot out of this book because it was, it was, harder to find information. So I, I kept um, uh, I kept most of it in. One of the real interesting things is something, um, you know, unfortunately when I was writing this book, it was primarily during COVID. So it was primarily in 2020 when I wrote a, a bulk of the book. Because of that, it was very hard to get access to information from the federal government agencies like Freedom of Information Act and, and others because they were all shut down or, you know, half staff. So I have this great kind of um, murder, attempted murder on a, on a leading member of the Purple Gang that I was all ready to find more information on. And I got it back and it's all redacted. So it just, it took so long to get back. I couldn't turn around and, and try to get an unredacted version for the book. So maybe when it comes out in paperback, I'll, I'll, if I find that, that story in there and, and get the names of the people that were involved rather than saying, you know, not knowing who was part of it, but um, it, it really kind of illustrates that the violence that was not, a, you know, within the gang itself, and they were killing each other over drug money and drug deals and, you know, petty revenge killings. So, um, yeah, a couple of those that were redacted, I'm, I'm working hard to find the names of who was involved. Okay, one story to tease the audience with that is in the book. Yeah, so one of the cool um, stories is is the tie between the Purple Gang and the killing of a Miami boat builder, Don Arano, in the 1980s in Miami. Um, it's, you know, we talk about gritty 70s and heroin. Now we go to Cocaine Cowboy, Miami Vice era, Miami, 
and this boat builder who's best friends with uh, George Bush uh, Sr. is making boats for customs and he's also making boats for drug runners and it's uh, he gets murdered in broad daylight and it's just this really interesting story that has a direct tie to the purple gang so that that was really neat looking into that. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Okay. All right. So where can people find more of your work and do you have another book coming out or I know you just released this one, but do you have one in the works or what's next for you? Uh, right. Uh, right now. Uh, the next thing is I'm going to put a couple ideas together, um, send them to my agent and she'll tell me which ones are good, which ones aren't. <laughs> and then uh, the good one, I'll, I'll, I have a couple ideas of ones I think will be good next projects and then I'll put together a proposal and she'll try to sell that. So Okay. And how long does it take to, to do a mob book? I this usually give myself either. <laughs> yeah. I, I usually ask for 16 or 18 months. Wow. Um, time period. So that, that's usually what I want to do. Okay. Well, in 16 to 18 months, <laughs> we'd love to get you Hopefully. back on. Uh, Hopefully. Book. And um, yeah, you can find me at scottditchy.com. My books are all on Amazon. And uh, if you're ever in the Tampa area, I, I run a, a mafia walking tour of Ybor City at tampamafia.com. You can find out information about that. Yeah, but, I um, like you. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was, I've been in Tampa one time, um, and I flew in for an event and flew out. I didn't realize they had all this this mob history there. I, I would have probably made a point to uh, to check that out. It's been a few years ago now, but yeah, interesting. That's interesting stuff. If someone down there, I would definitely have to check that out because that's that's uh, fascinating for sure. Yeah, uh, but as you alluded to before, being boiling hot in Texas, we do not do the tour in the summer. <laughs> so it's September to May. <laughs> September to May. Okay, awesome. All right, well, Scott, thank you for your time. We'll link to your, your website and uh, the books on Amazon, everything in the show notes. Listeners, with that, we'll be back real soon. Great, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening again to this episode. All of the information is at ryanracinger.com. And hey, while you have your phone open, drop us a five-star. We'd really appreciate it. And with that, we'll talk real soon.